Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content, and we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Right off the bat here, shout out to Lisa, who recommended this guest, which was a nice reminder because I probably should have gave him the call earlier, but uh, better late than never. So today's guest is the father of friend of the show, Logan Men, my guy. He's also a big shooter in the Vancouver beach scene. He's got one of the best backyard beach coaches you'll ever see. He's coached a ton, including friends of the show, Mingo, Darren, Brian Hebert, and Olympians Martin Reeder and Conrad Lineman. He's also coached with Team BC. You may have heard him as a commentator at King of the Court. He's also done some commentary at Canada Games, Van Open. He He's done a ton. Let's get him on the show. Welcome to the show, Paul Mend. Mender, thanks for doing this, man. Hey, Josh, thanks for having me. Uh, anything that regarding volleyball that I get to talk about, it's one of my passions, so I'm, I'm definitely uh, looking forward to this. So I think some of our listeners have probably perked up and they're like, yeah, Mender's on the show. I got to listen to that, but I want to cover it for the listeners who may not know you. So let's start with uh, your beginning in volleyball, because I think some people know you as a ref, some people know you as a coach, some people know you as a player, but for you, when you started playing volleyball, like where did you grow up? Why was this like the thing that you were going to invest a lot of your life into right off the hop here with being a volleyball guy? All right. That's a great question. So we got to go back to the beginning. Uh, I grew up in Southern California. I lived in, uh, so if you know where Pepperdine University is, which is located on Malibu Canyon Road, Las Virginis Road, that goes from the 101 down to the beach, uh, where and just to the left of Pepperdine is the colony of Malibu. So I grew up, instead of turning left to go to the beach, you turn to the right, and that was uh, Malibu Canyon Parkway. So that was part of Calabasas, before Calabasas became you know, the Kardashian Calabasas that it is now. This is back in the day when we had to drive 45 minutes to get to a McDonald's. So I'm old, you know, dinosaur old. And uh, back then, it was just a little sleeping suburb of Southern California. And growing up, Played all sports. Um, you know, there was a group of guys in our neighborhood and girls that just we'd go out on the street and we, you know, if it was football season, we'd play football. If it was soccer season, we'd be playing soccer. If it was baseball season, we'd be playing baseball. If it was basketball season, we're playing basketball. So we just we were outside all the time, riding bikes, doing things. And I guess grade 11, I moved to Chatsworth, which is in the San Fernando Valley. It was a big volleyball high school. And I started playing beach in grade 11. So I was 16 years old, just turning 17 that summer. And I had a buddy, Dave Fielding, who I went to high school with, and he would hang out down at Zuma 6. And uh, I was down boogie boarding and hanging out. And, you know, just that's kind of where our high school hung out. Calabasas was right next door at Zuma 5. So we had all these, you know, it was just a hangout spot. And there were some good volleyball players there. And I remember just sitting watching and going, that looks like an awesome sport. And so I started playing pepper on the side and occasionally on one of the lower courts, I'd put a shoe in and get my ass handed to me on a silver platter and then I'd go back and pepper on the side some more. And you'd watch. And it was old school days when, you know, somebody would just move your shoe. Cause they're like, yeah, you're not that good. You're going down here. And, you know, it was just like this thing where you just, the community, even though it was, you know, competitive, it was still very friendly and everybody was super supportive. So going back into grade 12, 
that year I'm like, I'm trying, cause I was on the swim team and I'm like, I'm trying out for volleyball. I freaking love the sport. I want to play. So I went into the gym and coach at the time is like, Hey, I said, you know, I want to try out. I said, I've been playing beach all summer. He's like, Oh, you know what a six, two is. I'm like, no, you know what a five, one is. I'm like, no, he's like, yeah, we don't need you. I'm like, okay. And so I walked out Well, the girls were practicing in the other gym, we had two gyms at this high school. It was like, we had 4,000 students in our high school. So I walked into the other gym and a couple of the girls around the women's team were friends of mine and they knew that I was playing beach. And so I went in and just said to the coach, Hey, you know, you need some help. I can hit balls and, you know, run some drills for you or whatever. He's like, sure. So I, that was kind of the, my first foray into coaching. Uh, Cause I got cut from the senior boys team. And then the following year, I went to Pierce college, uh, which is in Woodland Hills and Ken Stanley uh, was a long time coach, won nationals numerous times and was a pretty legendary coach. And he also ran an advanced volleyball class, two of them. One of them I took, um, you know, I'm like putting that into my schedule because you know I'm thinking maybe phys ed teacher in the future. don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm definitely taking this volleyball class. So quickly improved my skills, learned a lot about the game. Thanks to Ken. And then there was a second class that he taught at night, which was the same time as a history of Jewish studies class that I had enrolled in. And that class was boring as hell. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to that. I can go play volleyball. So I doubled up on the advanced. Thing. I ended up failing that history class, but I definitely passed my, you know, the one volleyball, the advanced leaders or volleyball class that I was in. So from that point on, um, I was addicted. I was passionate about the sport. It was anything I could do to watch. And then where I had gone to high school in Calabasas early on, Russ and Mike Bird, who lived up the street from me, uh, Jeff Sawara, Rudy Sawara's uh, nephew, uh, Bill Neff. Um, let's see, Russ played at San Luis Obispo. Mike played at Cal State Northridge, I want to say. Bill was at UCLA. So all these guys that I'd gone to high school with were pretty high-level players. Mike and Russ were on the AVP. Uh, they were sort of a mid-range team. Like, they weren't winning AVPs, but they were competing, and they were playing against... Karch. They were playing against, you know, Jose Loyola. They were playing against names of, you know, people that we know from a long time ago. And so that's kind of how I just got into it. And then 1984, fast forward to 1981, I moved to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho to follow some scheme passion. And my dad and stepmom had moved up there a couple of years prior. And so North Idaho College had a women's team. And then there was a men's club team that ran in the city and we competed in Spokane, Washington. So I was center for that team, helped out with the college team there. And then fast forward to 1985 when I came to Simon Fraser University to do my education degree. And then, you know, found Kit Speech, found uh, Charles Tupper, um, was looking for a coach, a good friend of mine who I had gone through PDP with at SFU. That's a teacher program. Um, Wendy Charles was coaching at Charles Tupper, and she said they're looking for a junior boys coach. So Jim Campbell, who had played at UBC way back in the day, um, I phoned him up and I said, hey, I hear you're looking for a coach. He's like, come on down. And so I ended up coaching at Tupper. 1986 junior boys were undefeated. We were rocking it. And it was kind of my first official head coaching gig on my own. And then work to rule came in. The teachers went out on strike. And uh, so we had to cancel our season. We were going to win the cities that year. And uh, so just moving on from there, I started to get involved with the provincial team. I was playing at Kits on a regular basis. Uh, 
back when Tom Caverly, Dan's dad, you know Dan, um, Tom was playing with Jim Clive at that time. They were partners and they were one of the strong. So I was never an open player. This was more like the level below open. And so Paul Smith, who I would say best friend, was best man at my wedding. He was also my beach partner in from the mid to late 80s um, up until, you know, we sort of both moved in different I came to the Okanagan. He ended up going to Prince George, but um, we, yeah, we partnered and we won a couple provincial championships against Jim and uh, Tom uh, back in the day. I would say 87, 88, 88, 89. And then I played with Pat Henley for a summer, uh, coach at TRU. Um, so, you know, there's just all these old names that are still involved in the game. And I think that's where, you know, my coaching philosophy and sort of how I, proceeded to show it to athletes that I was able to coach was just creating opportunities, an opportunity to maybe get your post-secondary paid for an opportunity to maybe play a provincial team, maybe an opportunity to play national team, whatever that was, it was just creating opportunities um, within the sport that I love. And I think, you know, um, I'll stop there and let you ask more <laughs> questions because that was a lot. Um, but that, that, that was the beginning. I'm sure I left out a few pieces, but that's, that's the, the gist of it. No, no, this is awesome. And yeah, before we get to, uh, you know, how you arrived in Canada and the kids scene and all that, I do want to talk quickly about just the California beach scene, because obviously you're a really passionate guy, but I think there's just so much about that, that it's so easy to get ignited there. And the reason I bring that up when we had Todd Rogers on the show, fantastic, amazing player, but he's like, I never had goals of playing internationally because my heroes were always playing on the AVP or playing in this scene. Like there's just so many role models in the scene there. Right. So just tell me like, obviously you're playing pepper on the side and you're working up the challenge court, but just talk about like how the, the California vibe or the community there kind of like help support and create this passion that you have. So not only was it a sport, but it was just a culture. It was the beach culture of West coast. Um, you know, growing up in Southern California, it's kind of like, you know, Toronto being the center of the universe for Canada. It's kind of like Southern California was the center of the universe for anything beach related, whether it was surfing, whether it was beach volleyball, whether it was boogie boarding, whether it was, you know, um, muscle beach down at Venice or bikini contests or whatever, whatever have you, it was just this lifestyle. And so for me, the ocean, like when I get near saltwater, it just makes me happy. I don't know what it is. It's like something that's genetic or if it's something that I develop by living there. Um, but I know that anytime I get near the ocean, I just, one of the first things I want to do is I want to swim. I want to jump in the ocean. doesn't matter how cold it is. Like I just want something about saltwater for me is just this thing. And it just brings me back to maybe those times in my childhood or whatever that is a reference an anchor point, whatever you want to call it. Um, but the beach, and that's what, that's what's so beautiful about kids beach is that that is the same vibe that I grew up with in California is what kids beach has. And having been to Ashbridge's numerous times, you know, there's a different vibe there. It's still awesome. It's still beach volleyball, but I would say, you know, 20 years ago, the vibe was maybe slightly different. My perception is, is that, you know, people that are in the beach volleyball world, it's, um, they're training full time. It's almost like a job and it's not as much fun. And one of my coaching philosophies was if it ain't fun, you're playing the wrong sport. Like go find another sport to play. If you're not having fun doing this and you're not like just enjoying the time of your life, then go do something different, like find your passion. But for me, you know, as a coach, I just, 
I don't know. Laughter was part of practice. Like we had to joke, we had to have fun. We had to have, you know, there were serious parts of practice where we'd work hard and, you know, there were certain things, achievable goals, but ultimately, you know, there had to be smiles on the faces of athletes coming in and leaving practice. And, and, you know, we had crisis moments where stuff happened and, you know, you deal with all that, but uh, for the most part of it, one of those philosophies was fun, right? So have fun. So what, what led to your decision? Obviously you're pursuing teaching and that you decide that's what you want to do, but what made you go north of the border to pursue your education and obviously get a job after? Like how did this California guy become a, a Vancouver guy? That's a great question. So, uh, okay. Fast forward, reverse, rewind back to 81. I moved to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Um, I had uh, finished an associate arts degree in 84. And so even backtrack way beyond that, my mom passed away when I was eight years old. She had Hodgkin's lymphoma and she now it's like 85, 90% curable, but back then it wasn't. So when she passed away, uh, the government had this program where, you know, if you were a certain age, the government sent money to the surviving partner or spouse, which was my dad. And he basically, and it was just to help, you know, support and whatever they needed. Well, I was very grateful that my dad had a job that he didn't really need that money. So he put that in a bank account for me. And he said, that's going to be your education money or your travel money. Cause one of the things before my mom passed, she went to Europe and traveled for six months and just, you know, kind of went and saw uh, things that she wanted to see. And so one of the goals I have once I have my associate arts degree was go to Europe and travel. So in 1984, I hop in a plane, I travel over to Europe, um, I backpack, started in Israel, I made my way to Greece and then went up north to Sweden, Norway, did the whole thing and spent 11 months traveling. Upon arriving back, they had had big cutbacks. I applied to go to Santa Barbara. I wanted to go be a gaucho. I was going to go to Santa Barbara. I was going to maybe see if I could, you know, be a bench guy on the volleyball team there and just hang out and play at East Beach. And that would have been like, that was my dream. So because I'd moved to Idaho, they were going to charge me out-of-state tuition fees, which was like $52,000 a year back in 1985. And I'm like, that's not happening. And then I looked at going to the University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho for their education program. And they had just had all these big education cutbacks because it was a recession. And a professor of mine at North Idaho College, uh, Tony Stewart, who I'm still good friends with, uh, he's good friends with my dad. He said, Paul, you should go to Simon Fraser University in uh, Vancouver, BC. They have one of the best education programs in North America. And I said, sounds good to me. Sounds like traveling again. And I, you know, had that travel bug. So I was like, and I had also traveled with a woman named Renee Layton, who actually grew up in the same hometown in Rossland, BC, this, this whopping metropolis, not really tiny town, uh, where my wife, uh, Denise, is from. And so she was older, but Denise knew of her and went to school with her younger brother. And long story short, that relationship ended before I came. But I had been to Vancouver. I had you know, been out to UBC. I was like, Vancouver's a great city. So I applied for... Uh, the education program at SFU and moved up in 85 and never left. Wow. That's how I got here. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And now you're talking about the kids scene and I'm curious how that's evolved because I, I think Jim gets a lot of credit and it's certainly deserved, but I'm wondering because you had seen the California scene, like 
did you have any input or were you a big believer in like the challenge court system or, or how these climbers evolve that like anybody can play? And I think when I, when I talk to some of obviously on our show and who I have contacts with tend to be like a little bit more of the high end players, but they do enjoy the fact that like anybody can play with anybody. Like it is a true open format. Like climbers are long days because there's a lot of matches. Like you don't tear it right from the start that you see maybe more in Ontario. Right. So uh, I'm curious, did you kind of help mold and develop this kid scene or was it already in place when you arrived? So it's interesting. Back in the day, the kid scene was pretty clicky uh, in the sense of you had to, like, in order to get it on court one, you sort of had to, I mean, you could do it. You had to put your shoe in though. And you might have to wait a long time because somebody that was on the court would be like, oh, well, that wasn't my shoe. My shoe is right here, but they just asked me to play, but I'm holding my spot kind of thing. There was all sorts of ways that, you know, they could stay on the court longer. Um, so I think that's sort of morphed into, you know, what it's become now. I mean, the KBVA was non-existent when I was in Vancouver. Like that didn't happen until I moved away to the Okanagan. And then so the KBVA became a thing, uh, you know, thanks to all the work that uh, Jim and, and the rest of the crew down there have done. And uh, it's just, it's such an amazing group, you know, and, and then the women's group as well. I mean, it's just, there is just this community of athletes and human beings that you go down there. And I mean, it's, I walk down and it's like, old home week when I get down there because it's either athletes that I've coached athlete like on Sundays, there's a 15 over crew, the master's group that plays. So if I'm in Vancouver on a Sunday, you'll find me in kids beach in the morning or in the winter time, I'll be at six pack because the guys play there as well. And I don't have a bubble and heaters yet over my outdoor court. So in the winter time, that gets shut down. Um, so it's kind of tough to play here solo. Uh, but yeah, it's, I think it's just morphed into what it's become. And I think it's again, such a great community and, you know, they really do a good job bringing young high school guys in, develop them, play with them, um, you know, teach them. And, and I think that's one of the things that back in the day, and this is, here's a story. So Paul Smith and I coached the first beach provincial team back in 1989. Sorry. That's for decade off 1998. <laughs> And we took down a group to Hermosa for the U.S. Nationals. And so Brian Hebert was part of that. Mingo and Darren were part of that. Um, and a bunch of other pretty top-level athletes that are still you know, involved. Ryan Causey went to Nationals with us, played at UBC, big lefty, um, you know, one of the biggest hitters on Kids Peach for a long time. So these athletes you know, went down, and they were high school kids. And they were good indoor players. And they were pretty good beach players. Paul Smith was working with a bunch of them on the island. I was working with a bunch of athletes in the Okanagan. And really, six-pack didn't exist at that point in time. We were we were basically the beach duo. You know, we had the Okanagan and we had... Uh, there was really nobody in Vancouver coaching beach kids at that time. So we go down to California. Mingo and Darren win the U.S. 18 and under nationals. They beat a team out of Santa Barbara that was California cocky. And they were like, oh, Canadians can't beat Americans. Like, we, we, this is our sport. And sure enough, you know, we won the gold down there. I think we got a bronze medal for the women. At the, in fact, uh, Logan Tom was at that tournament when she was 16. So there was a few, you know, people. John Kessel was running that tournament. So I'm sure you know who John Kessel is, right? U.S. BBA and uh, just such a great guy. And so anyways, we came back home. Well, Mingo and Darren, Brian Hebert, um, and Jeff Emsley, another name, Scott Emsley's younger brother, they show up at Kids Beach. And at that time, Dave Braun and John McPartland were like the top guys. Like they were the team to beat. They were the Johnny Whiskar, the, you know, um, Matty Liberty of the day. And 
they came back and they started beating all the top players and all the top teams. And everybody was bent out of shape because they're like, who are these young punks that haven't put in their time to learn the game? Because how did you learn the game? Well, you had to put your shoe in, get your ass kicked, go back, watch, learn, because nobody was coaching it. Well, all of a sudden now we threw the coaching aspect into it and you saw exponential, you know, levels of skill set that just change players immediately to if they were good athletes and they were, you know, could jump in the sand, all of a sudden they were very competitive against teams that, you know, have been playing for a long time. So it really changed the nature of the game. And I think, you know, later on six pack came around and uh, all of the other, you know, different beach communities in the South. And then Brian G who runs uh, the ducks uh, out in Coquitlam, which is probably one of our most successful indoor uh, women's, programs anyways um brian played for me with brian hebert uh, back in the day and we won western canadians in 94 and brian ended up you know starting the ducks volleyball club prior to that he was part of golden spike which was the club i had when i lived in coquitlam and we won the westerns as i said in 94 and then when i moved away uh they kept golden spike going for about a year and then it kind of fizzled and brian g ended up you know once he got his teaching degree he started the Coquitlam Ducks Volleyball Club, and now they have a beach component as well. And so it's just, I think that's the piece of the community that I love is that the passion of athletes that I've been able to coach in the past that are still involved in the game, whether they're still playing, they're coaching their own kids now. That's, for me, that's a success, right? Like that's that's how I gauge success is that these individuals that are in the community uh, that are still involved in the game that, you know, have the passion that I had or still have that are still sharing that passion with other athletes. That's what it's all about. Yeah. I, I don't want to glance over this because uh, I think it's important for the listeners to understand that when you started coaching kids and you mentioned it's in kind of the late nineties, Canada games didn't even offer beach until 2001. So like you were probably one of the first beach coaches to the point where like when we had Hernani man on the show, he's talking about like when he started Nobody did drills. He's like, the players who were doing drills were the bad players. You played volleyball. That's how you got good at beach volleyball. So I'm curious, what was the vibe? Obviously, you're coaching younger athletes, so maybe they're used to the concept of coaching. But were people at the beach kind of looking at you weird, being like, there's no coaches in the sport. Why are you guys coaching? Or like, what was the feeling? Who were you stealing drills from? Was it everything from scratch? Like, I, I just want to emphasize that, like, you being a provincial team beach coach, that might have been the only provincial team that existed in the 90s, right? Uh, Yeah. <laughs> but we were, we were number one, we were the first. And so it's interesting. And here's a story. Here's a story. So I'll get back to your question in a second. But so the year we went to Hermosa the following year, no, just prior to that was the first FIVB in Toronto, right? That John may put on. And so myself and Steve Manuel, women's coach at UBCO, we got, and he, at that time, he was the Okanagan regional coach. And so when he came out from New Brunswick and he was a beach player in New Brunswick, high level, you know, he was one of the top New Brunswick players back in the day. So when he came out uh, with his partner at the time, um, they, you know, went around and did clinics at elementary schools and they were doing high school stuff. And so Steve and I got to fly out for that event. So we got there and I mean, it was like, you know, being at the AVP in California, it was like just awesome. It was 32 degrees, lots of humidity as Toronto is well known for. There was a couple of thunder showers and, but you know, Brian Gatsky was there, Conrad Leineman, um, but Lisa Arce and Holly McPeak were there. And 
having my California connection, I went up and we started chatting and told them where I grew up and we knew some of the same people. And so it was like, they were kind of, you know, we were buddies, we were hanging out. And as the weekend progressed, I said to Lisa Arcee, I said, Hey, we're bringing a beach provincial team down in California. Do you have any connections, like any youth coaches that are down there that you you could hook us up with? And so she gave me her numbers, uh, the number of her brother. So I phoned Rick Arcee and he gave me a number of a guy named Dick Blount. Well, Dick Blount or Richard Blount is the head coach at the El Camino College. And he's been there for years. He's still coaching there. The most wonderful human being ever. Lived on 21st Street, right on the boardwalk at Hermosa. Um, Blue and white house. And there was a flag that said it was a house divided. So it had USC and then UCLA with a flag divided, right? So when you grow up in Southern California, you're either cheering for one of those two teams or you can't cheer for both. Um, It was funny because I was a USC football fan. But basketball and volleyball was totally Bruins. Um, so, in fact, oh, it's not here. I've got a UCLA hat signed by Alice Gates and Karch, um, uh, you know, still hanging around somewhere. Anyways, so I get a hold of Dick, and we take the team down, and he lines up Scott Akatubby to come out and spend a day with our teams. So Scott comes out and he coaches and, you know, Paul and I are running drills and we've got the team doing all this stuff. And so you were asking a question about the drills. Well, we just created them. I mean, we, we started running quadrants and, you know, passing drills and service drills. And it's really taking the indoor game, but dividing it in, you know, a quart and a half, two players. And so a lot of butterfly drills, a lot of different things that were easy, um, working on different beat shots. So, you know, a pokey, a cobra, um, just learning, you know, what these things a, were called, how to do them, how they were effective in a game, cut shots, line shots. Etc. Right. And all of a sudden, if you give this terminology, it, it gives the ability for the brain to you know, conceive and perceive of what you need to do. So that was easy. So fast forward. Hebert comes home. Now, Hebert's good friends. Like he graduated the same year as Mark Ellingston and Scott Emsley. Scott was a year too old to play club. So the year that we won the Western Canadians, we won. I think we came second at provincials. We lost to Kelowna. We lost to Mark Gellingston's team. But when we went to Calgary for nationals, there's another long, I'll go into it. We were down 14-3 against Manitoba 2 in a quarterfinal game. And we just were not playing well. And this is old school scoring. So they just needed one more point. The game's over. 13 rotations later, everybody left the gym. It was the last game of the night. We were on like the far side so there was like eight referees hanging out waiting for the two referees that were working our game so they could go get a beer together and we had our our parents were there none of the Manitoba parents were there because it was too far to travel so it was just our parents like I think there was Gord Catherwood's parents um and maybe a couple other people we're down 14-3 Scott Bender who's a really good friend we went to SFU together played on the men's club team Scott played played at Kits back in the day um and he's, we're sitting there and he owned all the moxies in Vancouver. Um, he started the chain brand in Manitoba and then came out West. And he looks at me and he's like, Oh man, he goes, this is, this is a bummer. I said, yeah, he goes. And then we started to make this comeback. He goes, you know, he goes, it's really going to suck if we come back and, you know, we get to like 13 or 14 and then we end up losing. I said, ah, you know, I, I, I agree. Like I was like, I don't know if we can do this or not. Brian G. Ducks, who I referenced earlier was not on the floor. If we had had liberos back then, he would have been my libero. He would have been on the floor, but that position didn't exist. It's how far back we're going. So Ryan G's on the bench waving a towel. 
ah, just cheering and cheering, pumping the guys up. And Hebert starts setting Andre Schmidt. So Andre plays, still plays at Kits. He's now 42. Um, he was the MVP of the Western Canadians. Started feeding the ball on the right side. They couldn't block him. And all of a sudden, 13 rotations later, we win 16-14. We cruised through the semifinals. We met Kelowna in the finals, and we whooped him. And so to go back, Mark Ellingson was a superstar on that team. Thank God Scott Emsley was too old because I don't know if we could have beat him with Scott on that team. Um, but he, within the age bracket, I think he was like six months too old to play in that age group at that time. I think today they can petition that and he might have been able to play. But uh, fast forward. So Mark Ellingston phones up Brian Hebert and he says, hey, you know, where did you guys stay when you were in Hermosa? So Brian gives Mark my number. Mark phones me up and I'm like, oh, hey, Dick Blount, I'll give you this number. So Mark and Scott phone Dick up. They go down and do some training down there. Dick lets them stay. And Dick's got like bikes that you can borrow, boogie boards and wetsuits. Like he's got Scott the whole thing. So fast forward, Scott goes to U of A, right? And Mark. Mark's at Calgary. Ben Saxton. You might know that name. Ben reaches out to Scott and says, hey, who were you guys training with when you were in California? Oh. Dick Blount. So Ben's dad, Don, reaches out to Dick. I go down with our daughter, Kirsten, Logan's sister, older sister, and she's playing in U.S. Nationals when she was 11. And so we're down there. Camille Saxton, Ben Saxton, and the Alberta provincial team are hanging out at Dick's house, you know, having a big dinner. And so it just sort of these connections. And that was a Lisa RC connection. It goes back to the FIVB in Toronto and just the networking of this community, because I think, you know, if I meet somebody that's a volleyball person and I don't know them individually, I guarantee I know at least 10 to 15 people that they know just because of the amount of time I've spent around the game, whether it's coaching, officiating, playing or whatever. And so I think utilizing that network, it's just such a neat community and everybody that's in this community is so supportive. So I just saw a picture on Instagram a couple of days ago of Sarah Pavan and Melissa, Amanda Parodies, in Greece training before they went off to Italy. Well, George Gastias, who has the only PhD in beach volleyball in the world out of University of Thessaloniki, is also a friend that we stayed with in 2003 when we went through Thessaloniki. He happened to be in Israel when Logan was playing ball over in Israel. We had lunch with him and hung out. There was a picture of the three of them together and I thought, I love this world. I love the interconnectedness of the beach volleyball world. So just so much fun. And with that, I mean, Hernan, going back to that, I went and stayed in Hernan's basement for six weeks. And when I, Logan was at York. And so I phoned him up and I said, Hey, like, I'm going to come and help coach. And he goes, I got a basement suite. You're welcome to use it. So, you know, it's just, that's what we do. You know, the number of athletes that have slept in our basement, provincial team, Olympic players, whatever it is that have trained here, um, it's, it's amazing. Right. And it's just, it's all about community and just supporting again, the vision of people achieving the best that they can do in this sport and helping others, you know, achieve that. Yeah, no, this, this is awesome. And hopefully I'm not uh, jumping ahead because I, I, I would like to get to it because again, just through my contacts and, and who I talk to, excuse me, we, we talk a lot about the kids scene and I, I'm glad you keep bringing up the ducks. Cause I'd like to talk about that area, but for you specifically, just tell me and the listeners about the Okanagan area and how much of a volleyball hotbed that is. And like what you're able to do as a teacher and as a club coach, like, cause I, I don't think Okanagan's an area I've talked a lot about on the show, but I, I know it deserves its credit. So just take me through, you know, what's going on in that area and were you kind of a builder? there was it already pretty established when you you moved to that area 
so when I got here, there was no beach scene. There was no beach scene, uh, um, you know, I mean, Conrad, uh, Conrad was a bit of a beach scene, but he did his at Kits, right? So when he went to UBC, but he's a Kelowna boy. Um, and so, you know, he didn't play beach, he played indoor and then started coming out onto the beach, um, say 1989, maybe 90, 89, probably 88, when he, whenever he, I think, finished. And so we used to play on the challenge court on Wednesday nights. And this is old school, nine by nine, no antennas. And I remember the first summer that he played, he tells the story whenever we get together in a group, Paul Mann used to kick my, you know, on, he'd always ended up moving down. Like I'd always stay up and he'd move down and he'd look at me and he goes, you're short. You're not that fast. You don't really jump that high. How am I losing you? Right. And so uh, he'd say, hit the ball. And I'd say, play defense, Conrad. Um, you know, because you can move the ball around on a nine by nine court. So um, anyways, when we got here, there wasn't much going on. So we had a few courts, but I bought. Uh, so Conrad, one of his things to fundraise for his playing at the F5VB level was he used to have outdoor beach systems. And he was selling these, you know, to whoever wanted to buy them. And he was making a profit and it was just part of his you know, way to make some money. So I bought 10 systems from them and I started running tournaments. We started running grass tournaments. Um, we had doubles and triples. And I mean, we had Jason Haldane used to come to our tournaments because his brother Richard lived in uh, Penticton. Um, they used to run one of the sporting goods stores here. And he's now up in Vernon. But, you know, Jason would show up, Ryan Causey, Dave Riso. There were some big name players that would show up here in these triples tournaments. And it would be like a either national, current national team or future national team or ex-national team. Uh, Paul Teeson is another name that used to come down and Paul played a lot of beach. So Paul was an Okanagan guy, but again, more as a player, not so much as a coach. There wasn't a lot of coaching on the beach scene, as you already mentioned. So when we started doing the coaching and people started seeing the success, and I think one of the things that my high school teams were always known for was really good defense. Well, because I told them they had to play beach in the summertime. Right. I got, or they didn't have to, but that's what they were doing because I wasn't doing indoor stuff. I was going to do beach. And so then they would come out of the beach season, come back indoors, and they'd be like, oh, I'm so much better. I'm like, well, duh, because you're doing 50 percent of the setting. You're doing 50 percent of the hitting. You're doing 50 percent of the serving. You're going to get better. You're playing in you know, sand that is hard to move in. So now you go back indoor and you feel like Superman. And my big thing was I was pushing all the coaches saying, hey, send your kids to beach camps. And they're like, oh, I don't want to mess them up for indoor. And I'm like, all right, keep thinking that way. And then we had a lot of success from an indoor team perspective. And then finally, coaches started seeing some of the athletes that were going and winning nationals, going to Wasaga. We had a lot of Okanagan kids that were going and representing you know, in Ontario and being very successful there. So I think over time, it's finally shifted that beach is like a – something that kids can do competitively. And now, especially because the NCAA has women's beach, they're talking about men's, but right now the number of young, young women from Canada that can go down on a scholarship is amazing. Right. And so I think it's really put beach at the forefront um, as an option. So from an Okanagan standpoint, I think we built it. And it's again, one of those things, if you build it, they will come. I put the court in my backyard, but we also had the Skaha courts uh, down in Penticton of which there was, Initially three, they upgraded them to six with a sprinkler system because it does get quite hot here. Uh, and then in, I want to say 19, no, 2010 maybe, I 
approached the city and we added two more courts. I got some funding to get two more courts in. So we had eight so that we can actually run, you know, a decent 32 team tournament. Um, so yeah, it's been, uh, it's been fun. And again, it's just building it. I don't coach as much anymore. Now that Logan's got me back into shape. Um, I'm more just, I want to play masters. I'll do private coaching and stuff like that, but I don't run clubs anymore, beach clubs or anything like that. I'm leaving that to the younger Tammy Thomases of the world and the other coaches that are, you know, doing beach stuff. But, uh, I'm still involved from, as you already said, from the commentating point of view, refereeing, um, and I just love to play. So I, you know, I want to spend my time on the court playing versus being the coach. Yeah. So before we jump ahead to the commentating stuff, uh, Tell me about the backyard court. Do you have the most understanding, most chill wife in the world? Like, how are you? How, like, because I thought it was like a newer thing. And then Logan's like, no, I remember like being an infant. Like, that court's been around for a while. You might be one of the first guys to have a backyard court, right? He's talking about like he remembers Martin Reeder coming over and playing on that court, right? So, so tell me, what, what's the idea? How do you get the pass to build it so like your wife is okay with it, like taking over your whole backyard with this awesome court? Like, just, just tell me from the idea to the execution how that came together. All right. So you can take the boy out of California, but you can't take California out of the boy. So wherever I wanted to be, like I needed a, I need to be near a big body of water. So Lake Okanagan fit that bill. And then the second thing was, you know, I was a beach guy. And when we were looking for the uh, property, so we had come to Penticton in 94, the quick story. So I had been coaching Coquitlam for years at Centennial High School and then Moody Jr. where Brian was at. And one of my athletes, who's now a teacher, Terry Fox secondary, Laura Betcher, who's now Laura Menard, she was one of the top volleyball players in the province, also a top basketball player in the province. Her dad, uh, Gord Betcher, was a principal at the French Version School in, uh, uh, in Coquitlam, Millardville. And Rachel Armstrong, uh, well, Rachel Manley-Casmere, Kirsten Manley-Casmere, couple of big beach players back in the day. They both attended Millard and both attended Centennial. I had the pleasure of coaching Rachel um, back in the day. But Gordon Betcher phones me up and he says, hey, I hear you guys are moving. And we had bought a house in Rosslyn, BC, where Denise was from. And um, he phoned up and said, I got a line on a job for you in Penticton. And I said, oh, thanks for it. I said, but we're already moving to you know Rosslyn and we bought a house. And he's like, okay, he goes, it'd be a perfect job for you. It's athletic director, B department head, volleyball coach, basketball coach. It's exactly what you're doing at Moody. And I said, well, thanks for thinking of me. And this was a Friday afternoon. So I hung up. Denise got home from work. I told her what happened. She goes, well, what'd you say? And I said, well, I told him we were moving to Rosslyn. She hit me. She actually just slapped me upside. She goes, you idiot. Phone him back. So I phoned Gord back, and, and so Gord Betcher had played basketball at UBC back in the 50s, and his teammate, Gord McKay, two Gords, uh, was the outgoing principal at McNichol uh, Park here in Penticton, and so I phoned, um, or no, I didn't phone him back, I, I just, I phoned Gord Betcher back, and he said, you're not going to get him, he'll be on the golf course, phone him on Monday. I go to a staff party that night, I'm hanging out with a guy named Steve Fukui, who had worked at Centennial with me. And his best friend, Richie Chambers, big name in the basketball world here in BC. If you like played any basketball in BC, you would know Richie Chambers. Um, he And he did junior national team. Richie was my faculty associate teaching at Centennial. I was currently coaching his son, Ryan Chambers, at Moody with Brian Ebert on the basketball team. I phoned Richie up and I said, hey, I, you know, this job, Gordon McKay goes, well, cause Steve Fagui said, well, you, what's cool? And I said, McNichol Park. And he goes, well, you know, the principal, and I say, yeah, it's a guy named Gordon McKay. And he goes, well, you know, his brother-in-law that is Richie Chambers. So I phoned Richie up 
Richie says, where are you? I said, I'm in Maple Ridge at a friend's house. He says, don't move. Two minutes later, the phone rings. He says, this Gordon McCann, I want your resume on my desk first thing Monday morning. Click. Okay. So that's how I ended up coming to Penticton. So that was a story in itself, not necessarily volleyball related, but a little basketball with some connections to volleyball players. So um, that's how we ended up here. Now, Denise was a basketball player at Simon Fraser University, athlete, gets sports. Uh, she's a physiotherapist. So when I threw out the idea to put me in a beach volleyball court in the backyard, she's like, of course, like, why wouldn't we? Um, so fast forward, we moved into the house in early 95. Logan was born in 97. The court was built two years prior to him being born. So um, the court toy and the court was for me. It wasn't for my kids. I was a, a whole <laughs> bunch of selfish reason going on there. I had no, I mean, once the kids were born, I was like, maybe one day they'll play. Maybe they won't. I don't know, but I don't care. I'm playing and I'm running camps here and I'm doing this stuff. And so as Logan, I think shared in the story that when Martin reader and Josh Howitston were here training and you know, these were like, they were in grade nine and these guys were freaking awesome already in grade nine. They were beating some of the top, you know, adult teams. And Logan walks out on the old balcony that we used to have in the old deck and he's, he's buck naked and he just takes a leap right off the top <laughs> deck and Martin's on the court just laughing going, your kid's taking a leak. And so I think that's whenever Martin and Logan get together, that story comes up as well. So, um, yeah. And just from that point forward, um, you know, having the beach court, I had a bunch of People that were coming up to do our tournaments, they all came one day and they helped move the sand. We brought it in, you know, shoveled it, flattened it all out. And at the time that we built, there was no, we had no neighbors. So the big double wide truckloads were able to drive right across the open field, dump it into the hole that they had dug. And there we had a court. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Still getting tons of use. I know, uh, Logan and Gabe definitely took advantage of that a lot when they, they were in your neck of the woods. That's so good. But, uh, yeah, let, let's jump to it. Let's jump to the commentary stuff. And I really want to get your opinion on this because you and I have never discussed this, but just as a, a fan and observer being a commentator, it really does add to the event, but it takes a certain amount of tact. It takes a certain amount of like reading the room a little bit where you can't just be funny and, la and make yourself laugh because it might come off as vulgar. You got to know the audience. You got to know what's going on. Right. So what was the first opportunity you had to be a commentator? And then again, how do you massage it? How did you get to your craft where you can be the funny guy, but you can read the room too? A great question. I cannot remember the first time I did a game. I did have Rob Jenkins, was at the house a while back and he remembered maybe it wasn't Rob. I'm trying to think who it was. I just talked to him recently, but they had a videotape of me doing a game at Douglas college in 1990, 91, maybe. I mean, I had done junior high stuff. Like I was on a mic and, you know, being a teacher, you're just comfortable, or at least I was comfortable on a mic. Having grown up in LA, I had the opportunity to listen to of the greatest commentators in sports, in my opinion, of all time. Vince Scully for the Dodgers. And I do have my LA shirt. Not that anybody can see this, but the Dodgers play St. Louis tonight. Or there it is. Um, so Vince Scully was like the legendary. I mean, I used to listen to the Dodgers games on the radio because it was boring watching it on TV because the commentators were horrible. But Vince Scully, unless he was doing a simulcast and then I'd watch it on TV. Vince Scully, you could just listen to this guy tell stories all day. And it was just amazing. And then Chick Hearn, for the Los Angeles Lakers was just the most legendary basketball commentator of all time. Again, in my opinion. And so growing up with that, I think all of us that grew up in LA during that era, um, 
just emanated that. Like when we played sports, we used to, you know, we do the commentating. You just kind of call it out as you were playing. Like you'd be like, oh, and then the sky hook. And then, you know, you're just part of it. So I think knowing the sport of volleyball and, you know, understand the playing of it. And I think one of the things as a commentator that I really focus on is promoting the athletes that are there. It's not about me. It's just about the sport. The sport itself is beautiful. You don't need me to be funny. You know, and I know in Vancouver, like we've got Sandy and Seymour who are like, you know, Stadler and Waldorf. They're just freaking hilarious. And again, it's keeping it to a level of appropriateness. And I think being a teacher for so many years and being that mentor model and, you know, for your students, like walk the walk. I'm always very conscious of what I'm speaking to into the mic that it's going to come across as very family friendly, appropriate. Um, and yet supporting the teams that are out there and having a little bit of fun and poking some fun at the athletes that I know personally that can, you know, that's not going to get into their head while they're playing kind of thing. Right. And I know um, that's for me anyways, that's my style of commentating is that I'm there to support and promote the athletes that are there, promote the coaches that are there and sometimes question those officials that have no clue on the call that they just made. Cause it was so obvious that they missed it. But, you know, and again, I keep that clean cause I also live in that referees world too. So I, you know, I try and poke a little fun at them and, uh, you know, you can borrow my glasses if you need them kind of comment, uh, <laughs> if you miss that one, but yeah. It's, it's all about just really growing the game and promoting it in such a fun way that it's entertaining. And then the game itself is entertaining enough. Throwing a little bit of commentary in there just adds a little bit of spice and some music. You got it all. So do you think it's best to kind of tiptoe and push the line a little bit? Or are you more of the strategy where you're not going to know where the line is until you cross it? Like, I, I do agree that, like, some athletes will think it's distracting. Like, I think of, like watching Matty Z play Matty Z can have a conversation with the commentator play and still like perform where there's other athletes who are going to completely be distracted and fold up. Right. So when you're doing a match with the kit scene and it's kind of like you're entertaining people who might not be volleyball people, but they want to be a part of the event. They want to go there. Like how do you find that balance where, like you said, it's about showcasing the sport. It's not about you, but you still want to entertain and you want to make sure everybody's having a good time. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's just, it's having fun with it. And I think, you know, you can read the athletes. Like if you're like, if you're creating an environment where you're just like, you're actually having an impact on the game. I don't think that's my role. I don't like, I want the athletes to have the impact on the game. I also want it to be fun for the crowd and will, you know, play fun when it's there, but you don't want to have, I think the overall impact, at least I don't, you know, if the crowd is cheering for a certain team, I may get behind the crowd and bring that out a little more because that's what they're doing. Like that's what they want. And so you're doing that for the crowd as well. Um, and I'm sure there's some athletes are going, you're full of crap. Cause I remember when I was playing there and you're heckling me and I, you know, um, Mr. Garrett may, I know that he got, you know, that was the whole hug count and everything. And <laughs> he took a lot of heat for that. And I just want to say I was, Maybe partially part of that, but uh, maybe more Sandy and Seymour. But anyways, that's I'm just throwing them under the bus. So. <laughs> no, no, Garrett enjoyed it. I, I, you did mention on air that his goal was to make them get another piece of cardboard. So for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, at the van opened, uh, Garrett, Garrett's a hugger. So him and Dan were hugging a lot. So finally some people in the crowd got a sign and started counting how many times they were hugging. And, and Garrett took it a challenge being like, we got to make him make another sign. <laughs> <laughs> no, and you know what? And I think... The old AVP, that's what it was about. It was about the personalities. And that's where I think the game has become a little too sanitized at the FIVB level. That's my opinion anyways, um, as an old school person. Like I think having those personalities on the court 
made volleyball what it was because you could back in the day, you know, Karch and Randy Stoklos and Sinjin Smith and, you know, these Adam Johnson, these personalities, um, you know, they just, when they were out on the court, there would be this verbal, you know, dialogue going under the court. And sometimes players would go under the court and get in people's faces. And it was like this whole part of the game. And I think, you know, with the FIVB, it's really been sanitized. And that's where going to Europe this summer with Logan and Gabe to King of the Court, I think that was they liked the personality part of it. They brought some of that personality back in and there was fun that was being had because there wasn't time to argue with officials. Like you, you just got waved off. It was like next serve was going. So you couldn't banter back at the ref, but you could banter a little bit between the two teams that were out there. And, you know, there would be shots made and, um, you know, the athletes would go under and just smile and they'd slap the other guy on the back. Go, that was a great shot. You know, like there was just this real collegial uh, funness uh, that was associated with the king of the court. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Before we jump to the king of the court, I just want to, uh, this is totally off script. We didn't even, you know, rehearse this in, a, in our pre, you know, two minute chat before the show. I'm putting you on the spot here, but uh, Seymour mentioned when he looks back at the van open, the, the hug counts may be like a top five moment for him. I'm wondering when you think of the van open, like what's a top moment, even if it's not your favorite moment of all time, like what just makes that event special to you? The, the, the community feel like what, what are some, some moments in, in time in that event that you stand out that you'd be like, yeah, that's a top moment for me. Oh man. There's so many, you know, and it's been so interesting because some years are, you know, with Vancouver, you'd never know on the weather. Like we've been really lucky the last few years in the Vancouver ran, open ran that it was sunny and warm and it was like perfect. And then I remember, you know, one year where there was like nobody in the stands. Like there was maybe a couple local kids beach volleyball players that showed up, but it was pouring rain. It was windy. There was like nobody showing up at the beach to watch this event because the weather sucked. Um, but I think one of the super fun things about kids beach, I would just say skyball, right? <laughs> like this, having this skyball mentality that if it's game point, you know, if you're up by a lot, you're for sure skyballing. If the game's close, people are still calling for the skyball. And if you don't do it, you're getting booed. <laughs> and that's just the way it is. Even if you're like, screw this, I'm just winning the game. I need the money. Like you're going to do it, but just know that you're going to get booed by the crowd because for whatever reason, it's just become part of the, Part of the regimen at the Van Open is just, you know, if it's game point, you're skyballing. And so that just makes it fun. It's different, right? Teams will come up from California and they're like, what is the skyball thing? Like, I remember Chris and Chris, uh, who came up a couple years ago, I think were there that year. Uh, when they were in the final, they weren't skyballing and the crowd started booing them and getting on them. And they were playing Harley in the final. And, you know, it, I, I felt kind of bad for them. But again, it's like, hey, listen to the crowd a little bit and at least get them on your side so they're going to cheer for you a little bit if you want that third man, you know, on your team. It's kind of like having the 12th man in Seattle. It's like, you know, if you want to get the crowd behind you, you got to bend the rules a little bit and just throw the skyball in there. And the other guys got it. Like the other guys figured it out. And it was uh, so it's fun. So I would say skyball for sure. Nice. And let's get to it. Let's get to the King of the Court. So for any of the listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, I think uh, originally it's definitely a Dutch promoter, but even Brouwer Musen might deserve some credit for this, but it's exactly what it sounds. You put five international teams on a court and you're playing serve, play it out. Winner goes to the good side and the loser is off and, and you play again. So it's, it, it, to me, it is professional volleyball, but it's got a little bit of like a, an exhibition feel to it. It's a little bit looser. It's just, it's just different as a fan, which I really enjoy. And your son, Logan, uh, him and Gabe actually got to go and represent Canada in this event. And I understand you got to go as well. So before we get into your role there as a commentator, just as a fan or a volleyball guy, 
what do you think of the format? What do you think of the event? Like, uh, I'm kind of pumping it up and I'm a little biased that I'm into it, but what did you think? It, it was the best event I've ever been to. And I've been to a lot of volleyball events. And I will say, and not just because my kid was playing there, this event, to be able to watch it, even online, I've come back and I've watched some of the games. And, and there were two things. One, you get there, and this was right after the Tokyo Olympics. So there were a large majority of Olympians that were at this tournament. They got invited. And I want to give a huge shout out to Grant and Borman, because if it wasn't for Grant, Logan and Gabe wouldn't have gone. So this is, again, the Volleyball Network world. Uh, Wilco, uh, who runs this tournament, he's the head organizer. Um, he had phoned Grant up and said, hey, are you and Ben coming back? You know, we're, we're expecting you guys to represent Canada again. And Grant said, ah, you know, I'd love to, but I'm going to the APP in Manhattan. And then I'm getting married the following weekend. So I, I can't make it. But I know a guy. And so he contacted Logan and said, you need to phone Wilco in the Netherlands. There's a chance you guys might go. So Logan phoned Wilco and they had a conversation. And Wilco said, I don't know who you are, but send me your resume. Send me yours and Gabe's resume. And he goes, I don't make the decision. I give it to my staff. They'll make the decision. I'll get back to you tomorrow. This was like a Thursday. I think we ended up flying out on Monday. So it happened really fast. And, you know, Wilco phoned, like, Logan phoned me back the day after, I guess. And he goes, we got in. We're in Hamburg, but we're not a new trip. And I'm like, awesome. I said, let's go. I said, you know, I'm not going to miss this. And it was first opportunity to travel. And, you know, it had been double backs already. So all those things were taken checked off the box. And so we got our tickets. And the flight got rerouted. Um, and again, we had booked, I had booked the tickets and Logan and a friend of ours, Paul Smith, we booked the tickets for the full two weeks. We're like, you know what? If you guys don't get into Utrecht, we'll travel. Like, we'll just be there. Like, I'm not going all the way to Europe and only spending a week. I'm going like, to let's travel around. We'll go see some friends and we'll go, you know, hang out. So the day we're leaving at the Vancouver airport, Logan phones Wilco and says, hey, you know, I just wanted to check in. My partner, Gabe, is trying to get his flight booked home because, you know, he just, he needs to be back for work. But if we get into Utrecht, you know, he'll change his flight and he'll stay. And Wilco said, we just had a team drop out. He goes, do you want it? And Logan said, yep. So now all of a sudden we're at the airport. We're like, hey, we're going to Utrecht as well. So it was a full two weeks. So, um, you know, getting there, you got to the training courts and the Olympians are there and they're having a five on five game and just the humor and the camaraderie that these guys who play, you know, against each other every other weekend or every weekend, depending on what the season's going. I think it was really sterile in Tokyo because of the COVID rules. And I don't think they were able to actually have fun. It was kind of like the no fun Olympics maybe. Um, so I think when they got to Hamburg, it was like, let's let loose. And it's like, this tournament doesn't really matter for points. We're just here. And the money was decent. Like, I mean, they all, I think they all wanted to win because the money was solid. And yet they were there just having a blast. And, you know, the Latvians, um, Smedens and uh, like they are two of the funniest human beings in the world. Like getting to hang out with those guys was like a comedy show. It was like, uh, um, you know, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Like one guy, you know, the straight guy and the humorous guy. And, you know, I think at one point Smedens uh, forgot his shorts. He shows up at the venue and he's like, I don't have my shorts. And like Logan and I are standing there and there's a bunch of us all standing there. And Logan's like, you want to borrow mine? He's like, yeah. Like, like takes off his shorts and gives him the volleyball Canada shirt. So he's out on the court playing in volleyball Canada shirt. And his partner's just shaking his head going, 
this is what I've had to put up with for 10 years. Like, this is not the first time this has happened. This is like a common occurrence. So it was pretty funny. So it was just really fun to get to hang around those guys. And then the event itself, like you already mentioned it, you get 15 minutes, five teams. Boom. You win. You're on the king of the court side. You win on that side. You're getting a point. You get two or three points early on. Maybe you're in good. You're like, you're like, okay, everybody else got zero. We're feeling relaxed. We're feeling comfortable. We can play loose. Now there's eight minutes left in the game. Two or three teams are still at zero. They're battling like last place team. You're done. It's like survivor. And so I think there's this, as a spectator, you're just, you can't not watch. It's like watching a train wreck, right? You can't look, but you can't look away because if you do, you're going to miss like a really important piece of what's going to happen. So I think throwing in the rally point, but throwing in the king of the court concept, it was just the most fun. And there's music. There's music. Like, again, the FIVB sterilized everything, so there's no music when the teams are playing. Here, the music's thumping. People are dancing. Um, it was just so much fun. And then in Hamburg, or sorry, in Utrecht, the, the facility that they had was like Harry Potter Quidditch pitch. It was just this big stacked, you know, cage around the court. And everybody was looking down onto the court. And it was just this really neat venue. It's probably the best venue I've ever been in. And the music cranking out. Um, it was just so much fun. And then to get to the commentating point, Louis Lett, who commentated the Olympics and commentated, like he commentates a lot of the FIVB events. He's also a coach. And he was coaching in China when Logan and Tom Sora got to go to China. So he was coaching the team from the UK. And we just hit it off. Like we were hanging out and we, you know, just, he's a good guy. Like we were just chatting and, and having a great time. And we connected on Facebook and that was four years ago. So we've just stayed in contact all this time. So when Logan got into the king of the court, I knew Louie had commentated that last year. And so I just sent him a message. I'm like, dude, are you doing king of the court again? He's like, yeah. I'm like, we're coming. He's like, no way. And he's like, you want to commentate a couple games with me? And I'm like, absolutely. So that's how that happened. So, um, yeah, it was just one of those things where I just showed up and Louis like, let's put a headset on you and let's do this and have some fun. So I was like, awesome. No, that's so cool to hear. And just with my circle of friends and doing the show, and we talk about the volleyball model in Canada and sometimes it's hard to like, the players aren't making money, but on the other side, the promoters aren't making money. So like if we were going to host an event, like the, the model doesn't really work, but I'm curious now that you've seen this King of the court, is that maybe a different path for Canadians to take? Like to, to run an FIB, it's expensive. You got to pay for all this stuff. Like it's a different feel to it. And obviously rally point, it's different matches where do you think a non-volleyball fan could get fired up to watch King of the court? Like, is this maybe something that Canadian promoters or, or we should as a community be trying to, to host? Because to me, Utrecht isn't like a center of the universe volleyball place, but you're talking about how cool the venue was. Like it was just a different feel like Hamburg. Don't get me wrong. I awesome memories of Hamburg and that facility and Mel and Sarah doing well. Like that's a beautiful facility, but, but for Utrecht to be awesome and you to have such a good time, does that maybe show that maybe a King of the court could get some more people involved and more people enjoying like the, the event feel that our sport can offer sometimes? hundred percent. I mean, I talked to Wilco and like, I'm like, okay, what's it cost to get us here? And he's like million. I'm like, okay, hey. you know, and you know, we could do it in Vancouver. You could do it in Toronto. You could do it. Edmonton's already shown that they had an FIVB event. I think, I think it's definitely something that, and it, again, it's a small venue. And so, you know, getting sponsors or whatever that looks like. And I think, you know, Wilco and his team will bring in some of what they've got and then look for local, you know, sponsorships as well. But he said basically one to 1.5 mil is what it would take to get it into Canada. 
And so um, I know that we were having a conversation going, well, that'd be interesting because I know this event is just, it's like the Vancouver Open on steroids. Like it's really, it's that, it's that much fun. And it's that, and you're getting these international athletes that they're put, you're putting on a show. I mean, they are, they're a hoot. Right? And they just they just show that they love the game and they're super easy to connect with, you know, as fans, they're, you know, very open to just whether it's signing an autograph, taking a picture, whatever that looks like, handing out a jersey, you know, it's just fun. It's super fun. And I think it'd be fun to, you know, I think there's enough Canadian teams and what they did when we were in Germany is they held their country championships in simultaneous like with that. And so the winner, and it was king of the court. And so the top two or top, no, maybe it was top three or top four teams actually moved in to the main draw with the international athletes and got spread out throughout the thing so that they could, you know, continue on. So that was kind of neat. It'd be neat to do that with Canadian athletes and say, okay, we're going to have like a double. You run that. And then the top Canadian teams besides our, you know, top FIVB teams would then, or national teams would then get to qualify to get in as, you know, the bottom seed on whatever, how many pools that we decided on. Yeah. I, th- I think it will work. I, th- I think, I think it's really well done and I think it would be uh, definitely marketable. Definitely. Definitely. For sure. Yeah. It was great to, to hear your perspective. We, we did jump around a lot. So, I mean, you have the open invitation to come back whenever you want. I feel like we could fill in some gaps, but it was good to cover the, the big pillars today and, and share some laughs. But uh, before we let you go, just a tradition we built on the show is that uh, volleyball is a great community and something odd or funny must have happened along the way. So I was hoping you could just share one more story before I let you go, just to give me and the listeners a laugh. You know, it's so funny because I'm like, when you said that, I'm like, oh man, like there are so many funny stories that have happened over my coaching career, but it's one of those where it had to be there. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I could tell the story because it's not necessarily involving, you know, high level athletes. I mean, I could maybe throw Brian Hebert under the bus and talk about how the fact when he was in junior high, like any clothing article that was left in the gym was usually Hebert's. I would take it home and then bring it back and give it to him the next day at school because that's just the way he worked. But, you know, that's not necessarily funny. Um, I was trying to think of another story where we were in Vernon at a Kalamelka tournament. I was coaching junior girls. We had, I was coaching at the time with a friend of mine, Jeff Goodis, who's a big basketball coach. His daughter, Cassandra, was on the team. She ended up being like top CIS point guard of all time, set the record for most assists at UVic. Um, and she was, uh, you know, we were running a 6-2 with her setting and another uh, friend, Livia Campbell. And we got on the bus to come home and, you know, we're like, everybody here, if you're not here, say hi. And, you know, we get in the bus and we start driving and everybody's like, yeah, everybody's here. And we're like, okay, we're literally 20 minutes down the road heading towards Oyama, like towards Kelowna. And somebody yells, where's Taziki? And we had a, one of our players on our team, Nicole Sazikko, who we nicknamed Taziki, as you can understand. She's like nowhere to be found. And we're like, oh crap, we left Tzatziki at the gym. So we had to turn around and go back and pick up Tzatziki. So, you know, that's one story. Um, oh God, there's another self-effacing story where we were playing a high school game. Like it was the same team. We were in Karameas. And this is not going to be that funny like because it happened to me and you had to be there kind of. The, but I, I walk in the bathroom and I'm like, my nose is quite congested and I do a, you know, a little... Uh, you know, finger on one side and I blow it out on the other side and I can feel a big release. And I'm like, all right. I'm like, where'd that go? And I, like, I can't find it. It's not in the sink. And I'm like, Oh, well, whatever. I walked back out. Well, sure enough, it was just like on my shirt, just underneath my chin. And I walked into the gym and one of the girls on the team says, 
coach man like mender is that like a moth on your shirt and she goes to touch it and she's like oh and i'm like oh my god <laughs> I, I wiped it off i'm coaching with jeff good at the time literally both of us had to leave the gym because we couldn't breathe we were laughing so hard I, we did not coach that game we put in i think the our who was our manager the manager had to put in the lineup we walked out of the gym we couldn't come back into the gym because we, we literally laughed so hard that our stomachs hurt the next day but again that's not that funny i think on radio but it was just one of those moments and i think that was the thing about the whole coaching it was just having fun right it was having fun with other coaches um there's a great coaching community here in the okanagan dave dickey dave riso tony sidero mike sidero john mcparlin norm you know there's all these norm hansen there's all these just guys but when you went to a tournament it was just fun you know you just it was like you're going to see your friends every tournament you'd show up at it was all these people that lived in the same world that had the same goals for their athletes that wanted to see them succeed and move on to the next level or just to at least be successful human beings and i think that's you know ultimately what it's about is creating better human beings through the avenue of sport whatever sport that is for me it happens to be volleyball um and now disc golf my other passion um and stand up paddleboarding so that's that's what i got for you today very cool. Well, Mender, thanks so much for, for taking the time, sharing all that you did. Like I said, we, we haven't touched all the stories, so we'll have to get you back on. But I think this was a good debut, and, and you definitely shared a lot. And, you know, I, I've known you for a few years, and I definitely learned a ton. So hopefully the listeners get a lot out of it, too. Uh, well, hey, Josh, I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, thanks for the uh, thanks to Lisa. So it was Lisa who that said? Lisa Tam, friend of the show. The only one who really comments on our stuff. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> I will, I will give Lisa a shout and say thanks for recommending me because this was super fun. And uh, again, thank you so much for the time and uh, out to the volleyball community. If you're ever in the Okanagan, the beach court is uh, open and available basically from March until about October or so. I think in the next week or two, looking at the temperatures, the net's got to come down and uh, it'll be it for the summer or yeah, <laughs> to the end of the summer till next spring.